a Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Uh, For those of you who are new, remember that you can go to our website, www.abetterworld.tv, to see what shows and what guests we have on for a given week, both on our weekly Monday television show here in the Big Apple in New York City and Manhattan. Every Monday at 7, we have a really interesting interview that's been going on for many years. And on Wednesdays, to wit, right now, we have a radio show, a Better World Radio. And you can get all of the details about who the guests are, what the subjects are, on that newsletter, which is for free. So simply go to a betterworld.tv and sign up. Now today we're going to have a very interesting show. We are going to be looking at the subject of food and food insecurity, which also by definition means the subject of food security and what that means across America and of the increasing numbers of discussion about these subjects as the economic disparity between rich and poor continue to get further and further uh, important, separating, being divisive, and causing a whole lot of trouble on all levels, as simple as shelter and food, making today's subject discussion even more relevant and important. Interestingly, our guest today is doing some extraordinary work down in the inner city of Baltimore, in one of the most economically unjust areas of the country, Baltimore, is uh, the um, harbinger of an area where some great innovations are taking place in specific respect to food and food security, as well as the quality of food, all the way to veganism. There are a number of initiatives that we'll be discussing today that have been begun or co-begun by our guest, food justice activist Brenda Sanders, who, as I mentioned, is a number is one of a number of community organizers and activists leading the way in Baltimore. She is the executive director of Better Health, Better Life an organization, and Brenda conducts educational workshops, urban garden building, and other community-based programs in Baltimore, in the inner city, to help to address these issues of food insecurity and turning that around, and health disparities that currently exist in low-income areas of Baltimore. This work that is taking place, largely spearheaded by, by Brenda and her colleagues, is becoming a model for other urban communities, especially inner city across the country. So, Brenda, I want to just welcome you to A Better World. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's really wonderful to have you uh, because the work that you're doing is pivotal and essential as we, you know, carry on and now into the election and there's a lot of talk about economic disparity, well, certainly in the uh, Democratic camp and definitely among third parties, and uh, yet it always seems to be more in the realm of talk than the realm of action. 
and you have been involved in the realm of action. So tell us a little bit about what it is first that inspired you to do this, what a little bit was your background before you got to do this, and uh, what kind of results are you seeing? Okay, so, um, yeah, I guess the the thing that got me motivated to want to start doing the work that I'm doing was finding out, um, well, I grew up in um, low-income Baltimore neighborhoods, and um, I, I always grew up around people who were sick. Um, and so mm-hmm. as an adult, I became really, really interested in um, in health and health. healthy living. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> and um and I started doing research and finding out just how bad the situation was in these communities like the ones that I had grown up in. Um What did and you find I'm, out? I've, what did you um, find out when you did that research? Right. So, um a couple of really disturbing things. Johns Hopkins did a study of um, the health disparities in neighborhoods in Baltimore, and they compared neighborhoods uh, that were uh, economically depressed to wealthier neighborhoods, and they found that the life expectancy was about 20 years shorter for the folks mm. in the neighborhoods um, that were poor. And, yeah. um, and that was a conservative number. Um, mm-hmm. Some folks felt like the number was even closer to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um and so that was really disturbing to me. And then um it seems like this concept of food deserts just exploded on the nonprofit scene and everybody was talking about the fact that in a lot of the neighborhoods um that are negatively impacted um by poverty there is a distinct lack of food um available to the folks in those neighborhoods and a lack of food. Yes. Right, mm-hmm. a lack of, um, and certainly healthy food, but I don't even think that most of the things that are available are food. <laughs> I wouldn't consider <laughs> yeah. them food. I call them food-like right. substances. Um, and <laughs> and so, yeah. of course, it's no surprise that the um, the health of the people in these areas would be um, far worse Compromised. than in places yeah. where... Right, right, right. Where food. In fact, those areas, a very interesting phrase, which I learned a few years ago, is called food desert. Even though it's in the middle of an urban environment, um, I guess some measurements of distances between where certain people live, certain communities, and something other than a 7-Eleven or some kind of, you know, a bodega that sells things like right. Twinkies and lunch meats, but maybe something of greater merit, you know, nutritionally, was really quite far away and really not uh, accessible in any kind of simple way. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true because folks in these communities um, generally don't have uh, access to transportation, uh, to their own cars, and so they have to travel long distances a lot of times, um, several miles in order to get to places where there is food, but then a lot of them are poor and sometimes working two and three jobs, and so it just becomes really, really inconvenient to try to figure out how to get to the food. So you just kind of eat whatever's there. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, what's interesting, so in other words, in short, Brenda, you became inspired at a very early age to seek out 
what it is that can uh, create health and then sustain it so you didn't have to have the same kind of um, future that you saw among your own family and uh, maybe your neighbors of um, not being healthy and then actually ending up quite sick and then probably dependent on any number of different social agencies just to get by. Exactly, exactly. And everybody around me uh, was on all kinds of prescription drugs and had all these different ailments, um, and I just I just knew that yeah. there had to be a better way. Oh, my. Well, that is so beautiful that you, in some way, um, sad as it is that anyone would have to live in conditions of that sort on one hand in the so-called wealthiest country in the world, uh, the good side, the silver lining, is that you had these sort of uh, insights and breakthroughs early in your life, which has led you now to doing some really rather significant things, activities, in these very same communities that are really making a, a significant difference in hundreds, if not thousands of people's lives. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is you're doing? Well, um, we are doing a lot here in Baltimore. Uh, There's, like, many different components that kind of make up our body of work here. Um, The first of which is that we are providing free workshops, um, healthy eating workshops, healthy living workshops to people in marginalized communities in Baltimore. Um, so that What are some of those communities, can... actually? I think it's good because I'm, I'm really hoping that, uh, you know, I've had a relationship with Baltimore for many years now, and uh, I would love that uh, people down there who know me would and who listen to this show would be able to um, learn about the specific communities that you are offering these educational workshops in. So feel free to be specific. Sure, <laughs> sure. So um, as it stands, we sort of rotate the Eating for Life workshop around Baltimore um, to different venues that will have us. So anything from um, a, a church in East Baltimore um, called Govins Presbyterian Church, which is um, in the Govins community of Baltimore, to uh, the Urban Business Center, which is in uh, West Baltimore on West Baltimore Street, um, mm-hmm. to community centers and other venues. Um, basically, wherever we can get these workshops into these neighborhoods. Uh, you we go where you're invited, there. obviously, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So that's just one of the Mm -hmm. projects. Um, We also have a six-week educational program. And those um, are free free educational workshops? Absolutely. Everything we do is free. free. People do tend to try to support us when they can, um, but we have wonderful – wonderful sponsors who step up and and see that the work that we're doing is important and so they've been giving us some support and um folks have been supporting us personally um but but everything that we do is free because we feel like this information is life-saving and that life-saving yes. information should be readily available to everybody. Yes. Yes. That's wonderful. So the first step is education, and about how many people do you think that you have um, had attend your workshops over the years? Wow. So, um, so we have we have the the 
Yeah, yeah. So so we have the Eating for Life workshop, which is a standalone uh, one-day, two-hour workshop. But then we also have the Vegan Living Program, which is a six-week series of classes. Now, through the, the Eating for Life workshop, we've probably reached a few hundred people in Baltimore. We mm-hmm. haven't been doing those. We've only been doing those workshops for a little over a year. Um, the Vegan oh, okay. Living Program, right, the Vegan Living Program has been going since 2011. And oh. um, that is an, a beautiful program that I have just been so fortunate to be able to come on board with. It's a program through an organization called Open the Cages Alliance, um, which mm-hmm. is an animal advocacy organization. And I recently, um, within the last couple of years, came on board to help organize the Vegan Living Program, um, which is a six-week series of classes that basically teach folks about the different benefits of um, the vegan lifestyle. So everything from nutrition classes to the ethics of veganism to the environmental Mm -hmm. um, implications of the animal agriculture industry, you know. And so... and so through the Vegan Living Program, I mean, just in 2015 alone, there were um, close to 200 people. 2014, more than 200 people um, signed up mm. for the program. So, I mean, we've been mm-hmm. reaching large numbers of folks, and they are really excited. Um, I had, I, I couldn't have imagined that folks in Baltimore in the inner city, um, you know, would just be – so enthusiastic. I just had no way of knowing. It's it's been better so than I ever could have imagined. Yeah. So in other words, there you are, Brenda, having grown up in exactly these communities that you're now serving in this really elevated, beautiful way. Uh did you have any sense while you were growing up of any interest in uh anything that you began to do yourself? back then, or did you meet with open arms, or did you meet with resistance? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> uh, do, do you mean, was I met with resistance from the people around me? Was that the In other words, was? when you were growing up and you started to sort of break out on your own intellectually and see that there's a better way to live than being on lots of uh, medications and wheelchairs on social uh, services, uh, um, eating, you know, what do we say, uh, Wonder Bread and, and Twinkies, you know, as your, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, I'm I'm exaggerating, of course, but you know what I mean. A, light, a standard American diet commonly known as the acronym SAD, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, when you started to break out of that and see that there's this thing called being vegetarian, you began to see that there are these things called whole grains and fresh fruits and vegetables and organic as a way of living and to break a certain cycle and to actually sustain, build and sustain your health. Did you, when you went home to speak to your folks and family, was there open-armed embrace or was there, what's the story with her? (laughs) Yeah, so um, I think folks just thought I was going through a phase, honestly. Um, It was just like a kind of strange, quirky thing that I was doing, and um, and people just felt like it would pass, honestly. Um, It wasn't that you would grow out of it. Yes, 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 because I was quite young. Um, Because I was a teenager when I first discovered uh, vegetarianism. Um, Uh And so I, I think that it wasn't until folks started to see 
the results of my lifestyle that they started mm-hmm. to take it far more seriously. Um, that I wasn't what? getting sick and I, I wasn't getting sick anymore. I never I've I ah. haven't been sick since I went vegan. Um, no right. colds, no, you know, and, and that's not to say that that will be everybody's experience, but it certainly was mine. And sure. it, it certainly, um, was something that, that the folks around me noticed, um, yeah. that, um, that I had a lot more energy, um, that I, um, you know, just <laughs> didn't even really seem to be aging. I mean, even when I go around my family today, um, they they just stare, <laughs> and they're like, "What oh. in the world is happening?" You know, um, oh. and I think it it wow. it has to do with just um, not just what I am consuming, but also just the fact that I'm so much more happy with the lifestyle yeah. that I've chosen. Really I I, I feel really good about what I'm doing and about my work, and um, yes. and so I think that has yes. a lot to do with it. Beautiful. So your life. You know, you're on a mission, and your mission has meaning to you. It's really important to you that people get educated and people start to listen to opportunities for different kinds of lifestyles that could open them up to the same kind of benefits that you're getting. And it's a natural, very human uh, aspect of us to want to share what's good with people we care about and even with everybody, you know. So I get Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for all of that sharing. So tell us a little bit more about uh, the way. Yeah, I would, I'm sorry. Actually, I was going in the direction of the assumption our society makes that people living in urban, uh, inner city urban areas, which typically in our country are are materially poor black folk. You know, sad mm-hmm. as that may be, it's just the case. And by the way, I I make the very specific distinction between being materially poor and being spiritually poor or even Uh educationally poor. And I think it's important because a lot of people who don't have, you know, a dime to their name or some, believe it or not, you know, some of the most generous and loving people you'll ever meet. So one does not go with the other. And some of the people who have a a mountain of money are some of the most miserable, unhappy, and stingy people you'll ever meet. So only would it be wonderful if everything went hand in hand, but we know better. We know it doesn't go that way. So uh, for the people who are, uh, you know, who has been suffering, let's just call it economic injustice through a mm-hmm. system that's inherently prejudicial, et cetera. Um, what do you, we, we we make the common assumption that they're not really interested in taking good care of themselves, that they'd rather just, uh, you know, drink and smoke and abuse their bodies by the ordinary American diet. But you found something different. Tell us. Absolutely. Um, and and to be honest, even I was brainwashed by this um, incorrect information that that's kind of being pushed out there to the public. And so when I yes. came back to the communities that I had grown up in, I was a little nervous 
I was like, I don't know how people are going to take this information. I'm setting up these workshops in these community centers, and I'm like, I just don't know how people are going to respond. And people responded so positively. People were Mm. so excited. And I never met a single person who said, I want to be unhealthy, not one. Every single person I've talked to said, I want to be healthy. I want to know how to eat better, how to live better, everybody. And so that was, like, so inspiring to me, and it really, really motivated me to do even more. Because once mm. people found out, you know, you know what the, the ways were of, of changing their lifestyles and so that so that it could reflect what they wanted to have in their lives, they, they just mm-hmm. wanted to know, okay, what do I do? You know, what are the first steps? And so it just became a process of helping people and guiding people to the right resources, and it's just taken off. That is so wonderful. So, in other words, you get a significant number of people who come to the educational workshops or come to the six-week vegan seminar, and they stick Mm -hmm. with it. What, What would you say is that percentage? of people who really stick with the dietary changes and uh, the vegan lifestyle. Yeah, so um, the thing about Baltimore and what we're building in Baltimore is that we're building a community so folks stay around. I mean, you know, they go through the program or they go to the workshop, but then they come back to the next thing and they come back to the next thing. And the great thing about the vegan living program is that once folks go through as pledges, they can come back the next year and coach another pledge. So it's a, it's a program that's set up where folks come in and pledge to go vegan for 30 days, and we um, team them up with a veteran vegan coach, somebody who's been vegan for at least a year. Um, and they just kind of are there to support the pledge and, you know, answer any questions they may have. And it's a really great system. A lot of the coach pledge teams have stayed friends after the program, a lot of our p- former pledges come back to be coaches year after year after year. And so we really have built this or started to build momentum around creating this community of people who are of like mind and who are passionate and really excited about this lifestyle. So, um, so yeah, a, a large majority of the folks who we touch um, continue to stay engaged and, and be excited about it. Mm, that's wonderful. I see that you have an affiliation with something called Pep Foods. Um, <laughs> could you describe what that is? Sure. Um, so we, um, a group of, of fellow activists and I, um, were really unhappy with the state of um, of food access in um, certain communities in Baltimore. And so we decided to just pick up a, a neighborhood and and do something about it. And so the neighborhood that we chose is called Penn North. Um, and so we were trying to 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 think of what um, what we could do within the neighborhood to engage with folks um, in the community and um, start to empower them to take back control of their food systems. And so obviously, growing food is the first step. To doing mm-hmm. that, and so, um, so in my head, I started thinking of this project as the Penn North Empowerment Project. Just in my head, it wasn't anything official, yeah. but it was about empowering the people of Penn North to uh, to gain to to take back some semblance of control over 
the sourcing of their food. And so, um, you know, the acronym for Penn North Empowerment Project was PEP, which then we just started oh, calling it the PEP Project. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and from there, what what we realized was that folks were going through um, this this vegan living program, and a, a major component of the program is the ethics of um, of the vegan lifestyle and how um, we actually become kinder and more compassionate in our food choices by just simply choosing to eat from the plant kingdom. And so there's a whole exploration of our relationship with um, the other animals that we share the planet with, and mm-hmm. and that's something that really touches. Um, a lot of folks, especially when we take them to the animal sanctuary and they're actually able to meet the animals while they're still alive. And, you know, there's this whole yes. big revelation that a lot of people have. Um, and so it it became apparent to us that, sure, um, we're, we're showing people how to grow vegetables and, and folks are excited, especially the young people, were really, really excited about growing the vegetables. But, you know, people still were very attached to the meat you know, well, what about the protein? What about the main dish? What about the – and so, um, mm-hmm. you know, some, some vegan chefs here in Baltimore who really specialize in making delicious vegan food um, got together and started to develop a line of meat of meat and cheese alternatives so that – and our goal was to make it as affordable as possible, and we really wanted for it to be able to compete with craft you know, to be able to compete with the sub shop or the, you know, the chicken shack or whatever. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and that's exactly what we've been able to do. So we, we crafted these awesome um, meat alternatives and cheese alternatives and, you know, all these other dishes. And so at this point, our goal is to finish renovating our commercial kitchen, which we kind of embarked on um, not too long ago, and um, mm-hmm. to be able to produce these products and get them into low-income communities so that they will at least have this option. So when they say, well, if I'm not going to eat the chicken, what am I going to eat? And we'll say, well, here you go. <laughs> right. And so right. in that You're way. You're putting it right, just, right on their plate. Exactly, just making it yeah. more convenient, giving people more resources to to improve, Absolutely. you know, their lives. The thing is that well, I also see that there's something that on your on the PEP website that says to produce healthy vegan food and make it accessible to everyone regardless of income. How do you do right. that? Well, brilliant. um. <laughs> well, it helps that I've been poor my whole life. Um, <laughs> because materially poor, have, please. Well, yes. I, well, I've been materially poor. <laughs> I like that actually. Yeah. I've, I've been, um, I've had a, a serious lack of resources, um, and so you know, you you learn how to get around that. You learn how to survive. Um, a yeah. lot of us have have gone to a lot of the folks who are involved in the in the collective, and we are a collective of activists and vegan business owners. And um, you know, a lot of us have struggled at least at some point in our lives. Um, and yeah. so we just figured out how to be because a lot of people, when it comes to you know vegetarianism, um, a lot of people are like, nope, I just I know I can't afford it because they think that it means that they're going to go to Whole Foods every day or they're going to, you know, (laughs) eat expensive veggie burgers every day. Um, And they just know that that's not something that they can afford. And they're right. 
<laughs> because I right. can't afford to shop at home. If you look you at know? it that way, that one narrow way. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, what we wanted to do was to say, okay, we've all been vegan on a budget, and this is what we've learned. And so doing things like, you know, buying um, wholesale um, in bulk and, and um, using um, whole food products. So whereas mm-hmm. we could have just bought um, the, the meat substitutes and slathered some sauce on them, we decided to make our own meat substitutes from the raw mm-hmm. ingredients, which makes it much, oh. much cheaper to do. So, nice. um, yeah, yeah. We, we just figured it out. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. I love it. And so, in a sense, you're also uh, exemplifying the notion of zero waste. Everything is usable. Yeah, and and it's funny that you should mention that because I, within the last two months, um, have started working in environmental justice as well, as if, you know, I had Mm -hmm. so much free time to do other stuff. And Uh what I've been... What I've been noticing is the connection between food justice and environmental justice. It's all one thing, you know, and so it it all feeds into each other because these these environments that folks are living in, these food deserts are also very toxic environments as well. And so as we start to take back control of the food system, we're doing things like composting. We're doing things like, um, you know, recycling. We're doing things like teaching people the, the importance of, um, just living in uh, a, a positive, uplifting environment, um, and how that can just change your whole outlook on everything, you know. Yes. Um, and so, like all of the work is is interconnected, and it's all really good work. That's wonderful. This is Mitchell J. Raven for A Better World Radio. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m., although we know most of you listen in archive, and that's perfectly wonderful. We love that you pick us as uh, a radio show to listen to and get this good information uh, and experience that our guests have had and are so willing to share with us all. It's really wonderful. If you don't yet get the newsletter, make sure you sign up for it at www.abetterworld.tv. That's abetterworld.tv. And become part of our A Better World community. We've got a radio archive that's rather extensive in all sorts of subjects having to do with health and healing and environment and well-being physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, looking at the larger world and progressive politics, economics, and how, in short, to create a healthy, happy, sustainable planet that's of our making instead of just our simple inheritance, which is so much of the way we lead our lives today. And more and more people on local levels, just like our guest today, Brenda Sanders, is doing, taking the, um, I don't want to say the bull by the horns, but the, uh, (laughs) um, what is it that you (laughs) take? (laughs) The cucumber by the horns. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, really make a difference on a local level. Building local economies is very much the avant-garde subject of today's world and the world of the new economics, progressive thinking in the worlds of economics and finance, people who do not put money and profit first, but put people and planet first, and profits are fine afterwards. 
after you are treating people properly and planet respectfully, then I think, personally, profits are just fine. Just don't make a killing, because the economy is for the living, not for the killing or the killed. So, on that note, Brenda Sanders, if you would, I'd love to hear how you have made the connections between food justice and environmental justice. What are you talking about? Sure. So, um, you know, there's a lot of information that's coming out now about um, the animal agriculture industry and how detrimental it is to uh, the health of the planet. Um, it, it, it is it is one of the major contributors to climate change. It is um, an industry that is actively polluting our waters, actively polluting our soil, actively polluting our air. And so these are things that um, people don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about right now, but I think mm-hmm. that these are conversations that are so important to have. Um, And so we need to start looking at how we are complicit in this because, you know, it's so easy to just walk into a store and go up to the meat department and just buy a, you know, a nicely packaged piece of meat um, and not think about the whole process that brought that piece of meat to that meat department. Mm -hmm. And so we need to start following that trail back to the animals <laughs> that it started with yes. and really start looking at our behavior on the planet, whether that be towards animals, which I think is a really um, vital conversation to start having, um, in conjunction with the conversations that we're having about human suffering and human rights, because a lot of times when mm-hmm. folks talk about animals, People just assume, oh, that must mean that you don't care about humans, or well, why are you talking about animals when there are so many human problems? And right. you know, it's 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 my belief that we can talk about multiple things at a time. Um, yeah. <laughs> that we right. can multitask in our activism and multitask in our caring about issues. Um, yeah. And so we need Not to, to mention that, that we are process. animals, right? Absolutely. We are animals. Yeah. <laughs> We are officially members of the animal kingdom. I think that is something that sure. a lot of people like to forget. forget. Um, yeah. And our, our society certainly uh, facilitates that forgetfulness with for us. Um, so what uh, you're and seeing then, and what you're – I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. No, no, I was just going to say, and so um, a lot of times because our lives, at least here in the West, are so convenient and so, you know, it's just so easy to just go out and buy this thing and that thing and not – and not have any connection to the whole process that brought that thing, in, you know, to you, um, we don't have to think about any of the implications of our actions. And it's really exactly. time for us to start doing that. Very true. Very well put. Uh, you know, uh, what you're doing is you're connecting all of the dots of the entire cycle, uh, having to do with food, having to do with money, having to do with big ag and the way the whole system works. And yep. uh, it's very profound 
awakening when you finally do connect those dots and see how it all works out. And again, it's for the few, not for the many. And it keeps, you know, they say that slavery ended, and officially, in some ways it did, I guess, by law. But I say it never ended. It actually just expanded and became colorblind. So, you know, it's just a little different. And the methods of enslavement are also a bit different. You know, it's not picking cotton anymore, but it's picking our brains in many ways. And uh, there are many different types of subtler forms of enslavement and conditioning that are being used today because of the development of such thinking, uh, the development of technology, etc., etc. So um, I think slavery and violence actually just becomes more subtleized, but it's... um, not less here. It's actually more present than ever. It just changes shape a bit and changes face. But what I wanted to really touch upon to pick up on a point you made, Brenda, is the um, environmental effects of the animal industry. And uh, another little-known fact to most people, I mean, in the circles I hang out in, you know, we've known what you're talking about literally for decades. Um, and it's, we've had broken hearts about it also for many decades and have also been full of different kinds of actions to turn this around in various communities, including on this radio show for a long, long time. Uh, But the point that um, methane gas that gets released from cow dung and from the animal industry, oh, approximately 100 times more severe than the fossil fuel industry uh, gives to the issues of global warming and climate change. That's how, I mean, surely we should be uh, conducting our transportation through electric vehicles, um, through, you know, solar and wind and geothermal and hydropower, and these things are happening across the world, thankfully. moving us away from uh, reliance on oil. However, in comparison, on a purely scientific level, uh, getting rid of, uh, or at least let's just say, vastly reducing meat consumption in our country and beyond would have a much greater impact even than getting off of oil. Um, the best possible world, we would be doing both. And uh, mm-hmm. it would also be good if a lot of our politicians would stop talking to keep the atmosphere freer of hot air. But that's another <laughs> subject. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if anybody has ever, ever quantified <laughs> the effect of politician speeches and on global warming. You know. Anyway, I'm just having a little fun. But uh, I think... For the final part of our show, I would love, because some of the websites that you shared with me um, were utterly beautiful um, in um, the recipes that you have, pardon the expression, cooked up, or I should say prepared. Uh, You know, you want to share with us a little bit of what you find people in your community um, responding very favorably to? 
And I also, by the way, meant to ask you, I also meant to ask you about the whole urban farming, urban gardening aspect of this, because there's a great film, I don't know if you've seen it, called, um, what is it called, Urban Roots um, in Detroit. It's about Mm, the significant conversion. I've interviewed uh, some of the people from that film, uh, the the really significant conversion of land, including in public parks, people's backyards, vacant lots, into really viable, um, prolific gardens that's providing not only food for people who are usually hungry, homeless, jobless. In that film, I'll never forget one line one fellow said, have you ever heard of a bird that was unemployed? Mm. That's wow. You know, just boy, can that talk about the interface of nature and how far we have come from the natural way of creating sustainability, you know, but mm-hmm. they are taking uh, prisoners that are just getting out and they're getting their hands into the soil. And before you know it, they've got a livelihood and they're selling the, the surplus in farmer's markets all over Detroit. Anyway, on and on it goes. And it sounds like you're um, following in their footsteps. You're doing something of equivalent in Baltimore. So just tell us a little bit about the urban gardening farming projects you've got going. Sure. So um, in Baltimore, uh, Baltimore has an, a, a really great program because there are so many vacant lots in Baltimore. I mean, I, I looked at a map once, and there looked like as many vacant lots and abandoned homes as there were, like, actual lived-in homes. Um, oh, and so God. Baltimore, yeah. So, and you know a little bit about that. <laughs> yes, um, I do. Baltimore, yeah, they have uh, a program called Adopt-A-Lot. Um, and uh, basically community um, people in communities can adopt a vacant lot from the city. They then um, have basically um, they they are taking care of um, that plot of land in whatever way they see fit. So it could they could make it into um, just a pretty place to sit, you know, put some benches and some pretty flowers and, you know, have mm-hmm. it be just like a community um, space. Uh, we can You can do uh, community gardens. You can um, do other things like um, performance spaces and things like that. And so when mm-hmm. we were in Penn North, Penn North, the Penn North community has just, so many vacant lots. Um, And so we decided to adopt some of them and to uh, use them as teaching um, gardens so that we could do the community outreach um, and bring in the folks to uh, give them an opportunity to grow food for their families um, or just – Again, we had so many young people just come out and want to know more. I mean, they were amazed at everything, like every worm and every bug and every mm. bug and every oh, you know. That's so they were great. just like fascinated. Every yeah. worm. And so yes, <laughs> they were and, and they were just so excited every day we would try to get there around four and if we were there at four fifteen, they were waiting and they were like, oh, You're late my. you know. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> and right. so um, it, it's just been this this growing season has been an awesome awesome experience. We plan to expand into the other lots. It was a lot of work, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so yes. our plan is to continue to expand into the other lots and make 
um, the food available first and foremost to the people who are growing it in the community. And then we're, you know, we have dreams and aspirations of a community farmer's market at some point. And so, yeah, we, mm-hmm. we definitely want to go in that direction, um, build up um, a, a local economy for the people who are just so forgotten and marginalized and yes. much more. And um, and hopefully oh, then be beautiful. able to have an exchange with other communities in Baltimore and with other marginalized communities. Yeah. So that's our yeah. plan. That is great. But the fact is that there have been a number of lots that have been adopted, and food is growing as we speak, and there are people on the ground who are got their hands in the soil and are doing the weeding and the picking and the feeding and the planting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um and and we've even met a few people um, who had experience with gardening, who just wanted to, you know, at first wow. they were kind of like, you know, what are these folks doing over here? You know, um, once they saw, once they found out what we were doing, um, and that we weren't just there to exploit them like so many other people have come through and done, um, then they really warmed up to us. And so they have been coming out and, and kind of telling us what's what which is great. <laughs> so exactly. So. so part of the entire endeavor that you've embarked upon, of course, will bring up the subjects of the difference between organic food and not organic of, uh, right. you know, agricultural, uh, agriculture as an industry distinct from the small farm, the ma and pa, and it would bring up the subject of, genetically modified organisms, which most people don't even know what a GMO is or even heard of it mm-hmm. or would not necessarily be alarmed by it because it's part of the whole, you know, standard program, standard American diet. Right. So how do you deal right. with these issues? Um, just with education, we were uh, really fortunate to connect with a seed library that um, has um, has been growing their their library they they have heirloom seeds um that are mm. organic and um and so we c- were able to connect with them and to get our seeds and then our plan very soon is to collect our own seeds so that we can um start our own library so that we won't even cuz who knows what Monsanto is going to do i mean i i just i i just fear the worst i mean i'm an optimistic person but i yes. do yes. um fear that they are they have just they have too much power at this point and that you know yes. some of their agenda is going to um to pass and and already is mm-hmm. and so we need yes. to start ensuring that we have more control over our own food sources because if not then we'll we'll be at their mercy and we'll so pay we the price teach. exactly yeah we well, will with our heartened. health yeah exactly you'll be heartened to know that uh there are a number of European countries who have simply said no to Monsanto and no mm. to GMO, and they are losing market share. They're losing ground, no pun intended. Wow. And mm. uh, it's sort of like for those of us over here who think about these kinds of things are just utterly delighted that this is happening, 
that this company that has wielded so much power on the ground and in government, people just do not know about the revolving doors of Monsanto executives taking on positions at the AFDA, FDA, the USDA, etc. And um, it's just, it's an utter, complete horror show for uh, food justice, for agricultural justice, for environmental justice, and for plain old democracy and social justice, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, the tides are beginning to turn, my dear Brenda. The tides are beginning to turn, and in no small measure because of the kind of work that you and your colleagues are doing on the ground, staying focused on helping people as you are. So I, I really appreciate it. But before I let you go, would you share one recipe with us? Hmm. Okay. Um, Gosh. So uh, a big part of my activism, um, again, is showing people that food can be healthy and it can be delicious and it can be kind. (laughs) Yes. Um, And that it can be um, affordable. Uh, and so I work a lot with whole foods. I work a lot with beans and grains and, and veggies. Um, and so one of the, the beans that I, or leg, beans, beans that I like to uh, work with um, are garbanzo beans, also known as mm-hmm. chickpeas, um, sure. because they are just so versatile. Um, and they are really high in, um, you know, protein and and minerals and, you know, and all these nutrients. Mm -hmm. Um, They kind of can take on the taste of whatever you want them to, so you can mm-hmm. there's there's such a variety of things that you can do with them and so I do um a variety of things with them. Uh one of the things that I like to do is a Caribbean dish um called a coconut curry. Um and the coconut is from coconut milk uh and then mm-hmm. the the curry powder. And I chop up lots of veggies, carrots, celery, potatoes and um and get those um sautéing in a pan, and then I add um, with onion and, and garlic, and then I add um, the spices to the simmering veggies. And for whatever reason, um, and folks from around the world figured this out, um, when you uh-huh. cook the spices in with the veggies, like saute the spices in, there's just an explosion of flavor, um, yes. even more so than if you add the spices um, if, at the middle or at the end. Um, of the process, oh. and so I get the curry cooking in with the veggies. Um, meanwhile, I have already soaked. I start. I start from dry beans um, because they're mm-hmm. far more um, inexpensive, and so I've already soaked and um, and cooked my beans and drained them. And then I add my chickpeas, my cooked chickpeas. Once the veggies are um, have gotten kind of tender, and then mm-hmm. at that point. Um, I add the coconut milk and kind of mix it all in together um, so that you got the curry and you got the onion and garlic and, and you have the veggies and everything and it's all kind of cooking together. Um, I turn down the heat to um, like a low or medium, medium low, and then just let that simmer for about 15 um, to 20 minutes depending on how hot your mm-hmm. burner is. At the end mm-hmm. of that time... <laughs> You have this delicious 
curry sauce that's cooked in with the coconut milk and it's cooked into the veggies and the beans. And you just want to put that over some rice. And that is an absolutely delicious. Now you want you 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 can add your sea salt or whatever to taste if if that's you know what you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. But that is a really simple and easy, well, simple um, and inexpensive and delicious dish that anybody can make, and you will be scraping the pan for the last <laughs> little bit of you know. <laughs> that is <laughs> wonderful. Is that is wonderful. And uh, you just have to know, and, and your classes probably guide people about where they can get some of the more exotic uh, products, such as coconut milk. Um, there right. are sources, I'm sure, in different parts of Baltimore. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's a product that a lot of um, international, that, that are used by a lot of people who do international cooking, so you'll find Surely. it in um, either the the... Hispanic food section or um, the yep. Caribbean food section. Caribbean. Um, you can go to right. You can go to um, international stores, which um, international market, which will have like ten different varieties of cans of coconut milk. So, um, <laughs> so yes. yeah, and then and so, but also in terms of the cost of you, have you done comparisons to you know a standard American meal? and the vegan counterpart, which would be, in this case, also organic. And you've done, right. you know, cost comparisons. And you can you really do it for the same or for less? Oh, you can definitely do it for less. Um, and even you can even splurge, you know, a couple of days a week and, and maybe get some some veggie burgers and fries or something like that. But if you are maintaining um, a pretty healthy um, uh, a plant-exclusive diet, um, yes. then you are definitely going to be saving money, especially if you can connect to the community gardens, the, um, the, the family-owned farms. Um, you know, the the farmer's market, you can definitely do this for a lot less than than the standard American diet. Yep. And there are food co-ops also in Baltimore that were... Absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. That is fabulous. That is fabulous. Give your website for people and your contact information uh, so people can get in touch that may be interested in really following up and following through with all of the good work you're doing and everything you're making available to Baltimore residents? Sure. So the best way to reach us is through Pep Foods because that has sort of become the umbrella over everything else that we have going uh-huh. on. Um, and so uh, that website is Pep Foods, Inc., so P-E-P-F-O-O-D-S-I-N-C.com. So PepFoodInc.com is the website, and you can find more information about us, about, you know, the commercial kitchen, about the about the, the gardens, about everything that we have going on. Um, and then mm-hmm. I can be reached at Brenda at PepFoodInc.com. Brenda at? PepFoodInc.com. Okay. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you again for being a guest today on uh, enlightening our audience about all of this good work going on in Baltimore. For anyone who is interested in leading a healthy lifestyle, a healthy vegan lifestyle in Baltimore, 
and uh, money isn't the issue. In fact, it sounds like Brenda helps people see how they could be saving money eating a healthier diet, which also means lower medical bills, medical costs, less visits to the doctor, taking control of your life and your body, and an overall greater sense of well-being as a result of doing it and knowing that you're on the right side of things and you're helping to pull the plug out on those uh, aspects of our uh, daily living that is actually perpetuating harm and perpetuating global warming. And this way, everyone can be a participant in the solution. So, Brenda Sanders, thank you again for your good work, and thanks for being part of A Better World. Thank you so much for having me, Mitchell. My pleasure. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. That was Brenda Sanders, a food justice advocate down in Baltimore, Maryland, where her work with her colleagues is really setting a wonderful example for the kind of grassroots work that I feel is the ingredient that's going to change the world. Really, this kind of awareness, this kind of community building, this kind of thinking, this kind of deprogramming, if you will, from the ordinary, um, the conventional thinking, conventional model is very empowering and really helps people take control of their lives, their health, their well-being, and ultimately it will really relate also to their finances. It all connects. It's all one big whole, and uh, we need to really think that way holistically and follow the money trail and see where you want to be in the whole larger picture. So thanks so much for joining, and you know that you can reach me at MJR, my initials, MJR, at abetterworld.net. I love hearing from you. I love your uh, comments and your suggestions, uh, your feedback. It's always helpful to me to learn how to do my job better and reach out more and more to the community to make a difference. Remember also that we two are a 501c3, a nonprofit, and any donations through our website, or if it's larger, just call me or uh, email me, and we will make the appropriate uh, accommodations to help us stay sustainable on the air to bring this kind of reportage, this kind of information to you every single week. So thanks again for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.